Hello, hello, dear listeners. Just popping in here before the episode to say this is part one of a two-part episode. So just a heads up, it will end uh, mid-conversation, and uh, you can pick up where we left off when the next part comes out. Sorry, it was just a very long conversation, and I did not want to release a three- or four-hour single episode. So yeah, I split it into two. And if you're a patron, you will have early access to both episodes before they are released on the public feed. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider supporting it because a ton of work goes into making these and only a small fraction of listeners help keep it going. And it's pretty hard to keep it going without more support. Um, another way you can support the show is by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or by giving it a five-star rating on Spotify. And yeah, that really helps too. Oh, one more thing before we get into the episode is uh, I wanted to mention that we had a few technical issues with the sound. It's not too, too bad, but in some parts the audio is a bit choppy. So, um, my apologies for that. And now, the episode. Welcome to the Polite Conversations podcast, where every episode is focused on civility, decorum, and good manners. And I'm your lovable, non-controversial host, Ina. If you know me, you know I definitely don't like to ruffle any feathers at all. Welcome to episode 74. Today I'm joined by Jeremy Appel, author, journalist, and fellow Canadian. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, great to be here, Ina. Um... Long-time fan of your work, um, so it's great to uh, finally uh, connect. Yeah, no, it's it's been awesome to see your posts and your work in this moment, especially. I find it so important, and I uh, know you've written a book recently. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, coming out in about a month uh, called Kennyism, Jason Kenny's Pursuit of Power, and it's in part a biography of one of the most consequential right-wing politicians uh, in recent Canadian memory. But it's also a, and why this may interest people who aren't uh, Canadian politics uh, obsessives, is it's also a critique of how the modern sort of neoconservative right was able to gain a foothold in Canadian politics and shift the entire political discussion uh, rightwards uh, in the 1990s and 2000s and, uh, of course, today. Uh, Yeah. And uh, you see, uh, you know, Kenny sort of now is doing this bit of a, I guess, a rehabilitation tour going on all these, like, podcasts and YouTube shows, uh, talking about how, oh, the, you know, t- the conservatism of Trump, that's not him. Um, he's from a much more, like, old-style Burkean conservatism. 
But really, um, what I argue in my book, and other people who I think are uh, a lot smarter than me, like Corey Robin, who wrote a great book called The Reactionary Mind, is that, that it's all the manifestation of uh, the same politics of reaction, which is designed to lock in existing power relations, whether it's through unfettered capitalism or not nationalism or uh you know militarism or tough on crime policy right i i mean the trump and kenny and i i mean also like uh his old friend uh david from um who's mm-hmm. now re-emerged as this principled uh conservative critic of trump with a <laughs> calm in the atlantic uh, I, I i mean they're all part of the same project um the guy that's to the the left of sam harris just pointing it out. <laughs> is, it, is that right? I thought they would probably agree on just about everything. Like They, they do tend to, but like on certain topics, like uh, I think Me Too and even BLM and even on the harshness of criticism of Trump, there, like, there were a lot of tweets that From did that I was like, "Wow, this is like way to the left of Sam." Right, because because at the end of the day, Harris is like Trump is because of uh, wokeness. Yeah. Whereas From kind of, I think he wants the sort of uh, cachet with the sort of woke, like neoliberal crowd who yeah. read The Atlantic both incredibly uh, sinister individuals. And that's actually how <laughs> you came to my attention was through your like rigorous takedowns of uh, Sam Harris, which have been like so great. I was actually just listening yesterday to your, to your latest um, listening through his uh, recent podcast with, was it Eric Weinstein or yes. I, I, Eric? I get them uh, yeah. mixed up. <laughs> Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It's wild to me how Sam Harris is spewing the exact same Islamophobic talking points that he was regurgitating, you know, 20 years ago. And, and like, nothing's changed. Just a few, like, you know, updated with, like, the latest uh, IDF talking points. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's the same thing. It's that... Islam is scary. When Islamic extremists act, it's solely because of Islam. It has nothing to do with anything else. Even in such an obvious, obvious case, like with Hamas, like he's putting it all on motivation by religious extremism. Yeah, which is uh, like this, this sui generis. I, I think I mispronounced that, but you know what I mean? It, it has no cause or effect. It's, you know, it's like what Edward Said was writing about in like the 70s and 80s about this, this the nefarious use of this terrorist label, right? It just freezes time. Mm-hmm. And it's just, this terrorist is just acting based on motivations that are totally disconnected from from any legitimate grievances. And so we can't actually address those grievances because they're besides the point. But, you know, meanwhile, Trumpers have very, very legitimate reasons to get radicalized because they were called racist, because they can't do blackface on Halloween anymore. And, uh, you know, if someone who is in Hamas now was radicalized by the fact that he was an orphan at a very young age because his parents were blown up, I mean, that is just not, not legitimate. 
Yeah, no, that that is. I, I think that um, is a really important contrast. Um, I, I know I'm not here to talk about Sam Harris, but you know I couldn't help it because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know what show I'm on. Um, has Harris ever addressed the fact that Hamas was only created in 1988? Not to my knowledge. Not in these recent takes, at least. Right. No. So just... I've I've heard him say things that are. You know, along the lines of, oh, well, even moderate Palestinians, you know, want to destroy Israel. And it's like, well, even moderate Israelis want to flatten Gaza, so. Right, right, which he'll never address. And it's always the idea that Muslims are just like, just a little something away from turning into full-blown jihadists. They're just like a ticking time bomb where they can easily turn at any point. So, I mean, do you really want your countries to be full of jihadism? No, you, then you don't want Muslim immigrants there. He's actually talked about this in detail, like, a few years ago with Douglas Murray about, like, how more Muslims equals more jihadism. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I suppose is true in the same sense that more white people means more white supremacy. <laughs> right, right. Or, but who who talks about things in this way? Yeah, no, literally, like the most fringe, like blue-haired person on college campus would like say that, right? And that's obviously often <laughs> who these figures are arguing against because they can't actually construct like a, a sound argument in response to someone who isn't like a freshman in in college and is just discovering these big issues for the first time in their lives and may not have the most nuanced perspective uh, right not like a 50 something year old guy who's been writing books and discussing politics for his whole career yeah yeah. Yeah. But anyways, I'm I'm so honored that you listened to the uh Sam Harris skewering that makes a lot of people very angry. But um yeah, so I guess today we're here to chat about the many, many distortions and the disinformation and constant gaslighting and inversion we've been seeing from the media and media personalities mainly, and I guess we'll be discussing it from a Canadian perspective, but like for anyone listening, if you're paying attention, I can assure you that this same thing is happening all over the Western mediascape. Yeah, I don't I don't think a lot of Americans appreciate how horrid the Canadian media is because I mean why would they like <laughs> you know Canada doesn't uh, you know in the grand scheme of things of course there's so much more media in in, in America but it's a lot more concentrated in, in Canada right I mean we have a national newspaper uh, the Globe and Mail which is center right. Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. I mean, its entire opinion page is right wing, and then we have the National Post, which is, you know, I mean, increasingly far right. Yep. Um, they recently hired uh, God Saad as as a columnist. <laughs> Imagine the guy is unhinged. He has yeah. not only hosted Holocaust deniers on his podcast and great replacement spreaders like Paul Joseph Watson, previously from Infowars, but then he is someone who will accuse random people of anti-Semitism because they disagree with him and he is Jewish and that is 
anti-Semitic. Whereas calling a Holocaust denier from Sweden, you know, his Viking queen or whatever is not. <laughs> yeah, and he loves to also bring up that he's Lebanese. Um, I, I've noticed yeah. too. So he's not just any Jew. He's he's actually an Arab Jew. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, he said he he is like, you know, the like D leagues of, of the intellectual dark web. I remember when he was uh, really <laughs> insulted that uh, Barry Weiss didn't include him in her idiotic profile that, that I think really brought this IDW moniker into like the collective consciousness, like so many awful things <laughs> yeah. Barry Weiss has written. It was useful, though, to have a term to just, like, refer to all those weirdos with. And um, do you remember when people started photoshopping that there was that picture of them going uh, on a dinner together and Gadsad was not invited? It was, like, Peterson, Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, uh, just a bunch of these shitheads, Sam Harris uh, and the Weinsteins. And then someone photoshopped, like, Gadsad, like, looking through the bushes. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. So good. That's great. <laughs> he was so desperate to be a part of the crew, and he just never could make but, it. Yeah, imagine, like, you don't make the cut, but Dave Rubin does. Like... I know. <laughs> so like, embarrassing. Like, you almost got to feel bad for the guy. But actually, my... And I know we're getting way off topic, but um, my favorite Godsad memory is when he made up that, like, clearly fake story about his wife being, like, paralyzed by fear because she didn't know which pronoun <laughs> to refer to their server by. Um, and, and he said that uh, everyone's walking on eggshells. <laughs> eggshells? Yeah, yeah, eggshells, um, which was great. But it was also <laughs> like, why do you need to know your server's pronoun to address them? Why, yeah. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I, the, she wanted to... Uh, uh, tell their manager that, like, don't worry, they'll get it one day. And so it's like, oh, of course, it's to be a dick to a worker. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I don't quite remember that, but it's not surprising because yeah. he often brags about these things that are so, that make him look so terrible. Yeah. One time he had this story about, like, he was staying in a hotel and the people in the room next to him uh, were, like, having really loud sex and he was like, he was like, that's bullshit. Like, that kind of sex does not exist. Or <laughs> just something that just, like, made him look terrible. Like, dude, uh, okay, if you haven't had it, fine. But uh, it, it exists, Scad. Yeah, I mean, that guy is such a loser. And that, but, but, I mean, that does give you a sense of, I think, the, the Canadian media landscape. Because the National Post is the sort of flagship paper of Post Media, which is the largest media chain in the country country owns most of Canada's newspapers. And so a lot of its commentary is, is, is just rammed down the throats of people in Edmonton, where Postmedia owns the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Sun, Ottawa, where they own the Ottawa Citizen and Ottawa Sun, Calgary, where they own the Calgary Herald and Calgary Sun, uh, Montreal, where they own the Montreal Gazette, etc., etc. So mm -hmm. there is a, a very much a uniformity of opinion in Canadian newspapers that I, I don't think you see as much in the states. Like I think there is, of course, in the states, a very constrained debate, uh, particularly on Israel and Palestine. But I feel like there. That just by the nature of the size of the market, there are more voices. Whether what they're saying is all that different from each other is 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 another question. But 
Right. Um, I mean, they do have like 10 times uh, our population, but yeah. And now that you pointed out, there isn't that much variety here, though there is this impression that everything in Canada is so progressive. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So before we started recording, you were talking to me about like how, how you see this inversion of the narrative. And can you just elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, in in my uh, adult life, I haven't seen such a profound inversion of the reality of really any global issue that's been in the news and that, that we in the Western world are directly implicated in. I mean, I think every, every time... Israel goes on a rampage in either the West Bank or Gaza or, or Lebanon. There is, of course, obviously these very powerful uh, pro-Israel groups who purport to speak on behalf of all Jews and say that essentially anything that casts Israel's conduct in a less than noble light is anti-Semitic and it's putting Jews in danger and uh, these efforts to shift the conversation from Israel's actions to how Jews are feeling in countries that support Israel. But, I mean, it's never been this intense. And obviously right. there's, there's a, a clear like correlation. Um, you know, I think Alexander Coburn once observed that you, you can tell how badly Israel's behaving by how many op-eds are getting published about how, you know, anti-Semitism in America, or in our case Canada, is just out of control, and that we're on the, the, the precipice of another Holocaust, and is so obviously a distraction from Israel's actions, which are a lot closer to a Holocaust than what my lived experience as a Canadian Jew is, which is pretty fine. I mean, I haven't really experienced any real major anti-Semitism. So you're telling me that the protests against Starbucks are not making you feel unsafe. Well, yeah, that, that that's another thing, too. Just using, like, because these pro-Israel groups, right? Like in the States, you have APAC. Um, and and, and yeah. other you know even more extreme groups in Canada we have Sija the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and B'nai B'rith and uh, Friends of the Simon Weisenthal Center and, yeah. and I, I mean the states has the Simon Weisenthal Center but yeah they're constantly saying it is anti-Semitic to hold Jewish people responsible for Israel's actions, which I think reasonable yeah. people agree with that. Of course it is. Like, individual yeah. Jewish people holding them responsible for Israeli actions. But then they do the thing, right? Where they conflate yeah. it. They conflate the actions of the state of Israel in opposition to it with opposition to Jewish people uh, writ large. And so, obviously, the, the, the purpose is uh, both to distract from Israel's actions and to cast a chill on criticizing them because people don't want to be accused of being anti-Semitic, right? I mean, that's serious uh, um, accusation. Yeah. And rightfully yeah. so. But um, I think another effect is it makes it hard to have a serious discussion about anti-Semitism when all these things are being conflated from, like, someone, you know, throwing a Molotov cocktail 
at like a Jewish school in Montreal, which is like obviously anti-Semitic. Or uh, yeah, yeah, which is horrible. And 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 um, to people protesting against the war in Gaza, and you know, someone saying something stupid at a rally, or even someone not saying something stupid at a rally, like just chanting "From the river to the sea, Palestine will be yes. free," which is totally innocuous. Like, like, yeah. especially when when you realize that Israel's governing party has it in. The, I mean, we hear so much about yeah. Hamas's charter in uh, 1988 yeah. that has since been retracted. Um, but the Likud party's charter says from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, yeah. there will only be Jewish sovereignty. And so if... Which is more extreme. Yeah, and is in coupled with the actions Israel is actually undertaking is also genocidal. Right, because yeah. it's like, well, uh, about you know half the population between the river and the sea isn't Jewish, and then if you include Palestinian mm-hmm. refugees in in you know throughout the Arab world, then more than half the population is not Jewish. So, what do you do with? that majority and we're well we're seeing what is being done with a portion of that population now which is um you know i i mean people say oh israel doesn't have an end game in sight they don't know what they're going to do once they overthrow hamas or if they can even overthrow hamas but but they do they do have an end game and and, and you're seeing it clearer and clearer now um as israeli cabinet ministers are yeah. being less and less restrained in, in saying like yeah we want to get rid of them we want to send them elsewhere right we want to send them to africa or the arab world or or the americas and the reason they've become more emboldened is because they know that everything they do has the backing of the united states um, yeah. both rhetorically and in practice. And, you know, I, I mean, again, Canada isn't like a huge player on the international stage, but certainly do have influence as, uh, you know, a very uh, wealthy country with a colonial history. And we're seeing that, you know, finally Trudeau called for a ceasefire, like, you know, two months into this. Yeah. But... We still sell Israel weapons. We still have a free trade agreement with Israel that yeah. includes goods from illegal settlements. And again, all of these details are erased when this conversation is shifted towards um, Jewish safety in the diaspora, which is, again, not something that should be dismissed outright, but also needs to be part of a broader conversation about Israel and yes. these incredibly disingenuous efforts to shift the conversation towards anti-Semitism here and pretend that, oh, this has nothing to do with Israel. We're just talking about anti-Semitism here. And then, like, 90% of the examples you give is of a pro-Palestinian protests. Yeah, that you know can sometimes cross the line into anti-Semitism, but but not the whole protest. It's like some people at the protest. You know what I mean? They're trying to throw out the whole cause because of that, right? And it's a deliberate strategy. Meanwhile, I mean, three months ago, we had the entire Canadian Parliament give a standing ovation to a literal Nazi veteran. Yes, yes, and um, 
And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was writing a lot about that at the time. Can you explain for the listeners how that how that happened briefly, just in case, you know, someone didn't follow the story because it was Canada? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised by how much of, like, an international uh, story it became. But, of course, you know, people's memories are short, and obviously it's been overshadowed by recent events. But... Canadian Parliament uh, had a visit from Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Canada has been a strong supporter of Ukraine in uh, Mm -hmm. uh, its uh, resistance against uh, Russia's invasion. Uh, Canada actually has the largest Ukrainian diaspora community outside of Russia, um, Poland might have a bigger one now because of all the refugees, but I, I mean, in the the sort of the the West, it, it has the biggest uh, Ukrainian diaspora. It's very powerful. Um, it has a lot of ties to Ukrainian far right formations who came after the war and were sort of embraced by the Canadian state because they were anti-communists. Because I, I mean, if there's one thing we do know, if there's one thing Nazis hate. Besides Jews, it's it's communists, right? And yeah. Christia Freeland, Canada's deputy prime minister and, and, and finance minister, is a big booster of these sort of Ukrainian nationalist narratives, whereby the Ukrainians fighting alongside the Nazis were actually secretly against the Nazis, and really they just wanted to get rid of the Soviets. And her grandfather, um, who she's spoken about glowingly as this uh, courageous liberal Democrat, was actually a Nazi propagandist uh, in occupied Krakow. Yeah, but... Uh, so they had Zelensky come to address the Canadian Parliament, and the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time invited as a guest of honour one of his constituents, whose uh, presence he announced as a, a Ukrainian veteran who fought the Russians during the Second World War and called him a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero. And you could, it's actually funny, if you rewatch the video, there's a short pause after he says that, where you could tell he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> he fought the Russians during World War II. But, but everyone in the House of Commons stood up gave this guy an applause uh you know freeland was just i mean she she she, um looked like she was in heaven and then of course many people pointed out online hey wait a minute we were on the same side as the russians in world war ii and you know who weren't the nazis and uh so there was sort of this uh relatively brief reckoning about canada's embrace of these Ukrainian ultra-nationalist uh, elements, uh, their statues. So so this guy, Yaroslav Hanka, um, who got staying ovation, fought with a Nazi unit in, in the Second World War, the 14th Division of the Waffen-SS. There were other, like the organization Ukrainian Nationalists, for example, which was much bigger, fought alongside the Nazis, but was also at certain points suppressed by the Nazis. Nazis and uh, but were uh, very sympathetic to their vision. That's the main like Ukrainian nationalist organization that collaborated 
with the Nazis, but this guy was literally an SS fighter, so there's no ambiguity there. Uh, here in Edmonton, there are two monuments. One monument to the 14th Waffen SS, and then oh. another monument to Roman Shukovich, who was a commander with the Ukrainian insurgent army who just oh my killed. They killed mostly Poles, actually, because by the time they were formed, they were just weren't many Ukrainian Jews left. There's a really long way, elongated way of saying, actually, when um, when this came out, um, these pro-Israel Jewish groups were, you know, at the forefront saying that this is uh, unacceptable, that Parliament gave a standing ovation to a Nazi veteran, that Canada needs to re-examine its history of providing a safe haven to Nazi war criminals in Canada, because there was a report in the 80s that the government commissioned that is uh, widely considered to be a whitewash, and half the report was never mm. even released. Um, and these groups were also calling for these monuments to be taken down. So, and, and I know who these groups are. I know how they function most of the time. And I was like... You know, I'm glad they're on the right side of this, but, uh, you know, I know soon they're going to go back to harassing Palestinian students at mm -hmm. universities. And it uh, happened a lot sooner than I had anticipated because of these horrific attacks on October 7th. And, you know, immediately after that, these attacks, um, any uh, demonstration of solidarity with the Palestinians was cast as being a demonstration as part of Hamas that was celebrating October 7th rather than people knowing exactly what was going to come next. Right. Because um, it's the only way Israel ever responds to Palestinian violence is through uh, even greater violence. Yeah. Um, and uh, especially when you have a you know openly extremist, uh, frankly exterminationist Israeli government that has been yeah. members of which have been saying, yeah, we're going to do a second Nakba. Well, they got their pretext to to do that. Yeah. Um, yep. Tying back to what we were saying about Sam Harris earlier, you saw the return of this sort of 9-11 uh, yes. style just naked Islamophobia that, you know, Harris embodies. But There's quite a few people like that. Like, yeah. I don't know if you follow Douglas Murray, but he's like oh, over yeah. there just like giddy with excitement. Yeah, yeah, I saw him on Piers Morgan with his uh, press jacket. Um, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, and he's, he's like, he's one of those guys that are just like mask off saying like, yeah, Palestinian civilians also deserve this because yeah, um, yeah. people were happy that October 7th happened, and uh, which is, you know, it's interesting too, because on the one hand, um, Israel's propagandists will say, oh, well, Israel's doing its utmost to avoid civilian casualties. That's why it tried to evacuate the entirety of northern Gaza um, to protect civilians, not to, you know, ethnically cleanse them, which is what anyone else did that 
we would see it for what it is. But of course, when Israel does it, it's this noble endeavor to protect spoons. But then, uh, <laughs> but then now it's been proven by the New York Times that where they told people to flee, they dropped their heaviest bombs. Yeah, and again, none of these people will have to answer for this because they just move on to being wrong about the next thing, but regurgitating the next, um, you know. IDF talking point. And I mean, people talk a lot about, you know, state-sponsored disinformation when it comes to Russia. And fair enough. I mean, there is a lot of that. And there's also a lot coming from Ukraine. But when it comes to Israel, the very same people are gleeful in regurgitating Israel's disinformation campaign, which is is, is so, like, riddled with contradictions. Because on the one hand, we're taking these unprecedented efforts to protect civilians, right? But on the other hand, um, the civilians also kind of deserve it, right? Like, is what they're saying. Like, well, like, I mean, Israel's president, who represents the the nominally uh, left-wing Israeli Labor Party, he used to be its leader. He he was the leader of opposition against Netanyahu at one point. I mean, he was saying after October 7th, he was like, yeah, it's not true that there are innocents in Gaza. Like, why didn't they overthrow the government? Yeah. It's their own damn fault. And yeah. um, that's, I think, what, what has been especially remarkable, reading the incredibly narrow range of opinion in, in Canada's op-ed pages. And it's like that inversion that you were talking about, right, where actually it's the Palestinians who are being genocided yeah. are the actual ones that are genocidal. And the ones that are doing the genocide are the victims in all of this. Yeah, like Robin Urbach, another um, Canadian yeah. op-ed page um, nuisance, whose entire... I, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think she's ever reported on a news story in her life. Like, I mean, she's relatively young. She's probably not that much older than than, than I am. And, and she started at National Post, which major red flag if you, you just get clocked as out of journalism school as a National Post columnist. I mean, it tells you something. Uh, But she was saying, like, her, and this was all right when the bombs were dropping on Gaza, when Israel was started bombing ambulances and and bakeries and, 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 you know, obvious civilian targets. Refugee camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. She wrote a column about how, um... Now Canadian Jews know uh, if another Holocaust happens, who's going to be on their side? And it was just crying about all these pro-Palestinian statements that were made by students in uh, organized labor in the wake of October 7th. And again, ignoring the fact that every almost every shithead op-ed columnist in Canada expresses that viewpoint. Every political leader announced they stood with yeah. Israel. I think the NDP... Yeah, everyone did. Yeah, I mean, the NDP did... Ha- like, they called for a ceasefire relatively early, but still, in the earliest days, they, they were just like, oh, you know, this is a horrible terrorist attack, there's no excuse for it. And it's similar in the states, too, right? Like, this is one issue where Republicans and Democrats are really not that far apart on their official positions at all. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Joe Biden is, if you look at his career, there was a, there was a good piece in Mother Jones, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago about just how extreme Joe Biden has been historically in his support 
for Israel, like over the top. Um, yeah. Like when Israel invaded Lebanon and he was like, yeah, well, civilians are dying too bad. Israel's right to defend itself. And even is- some Israel supporters were like, you're not supposed to say that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, um, you know, this weaponization of this language of, of, of inclusion and safety. Yes. And that totally erases all the various perspectives among Jewish people about Israel. Yes. And just says that Jewish people are feeling unsafe. The Toronto Star, to its credit, um, I think the only three op-ed columnists in the country that are all critical of Israel are at the star. Two of them are old white guys, uh, Rick Saluton and Tom Wacom. One is a woman of color, Sri Paradkar, and you'll never guess who all these right-wingers are like trying to get fired, are saying that she's creating a hostile work environment for Jews at the Toronto Star. And it's Sri, and I mean, if you read Sri's output on this topic is very mild-mannered, very cautious in, in, in restraint. There was one where she said, like, we don't know what happened, so let's let's let the experts try to figure that out, and we should focus on the genocide that's happening. I think that's something along the lines of what she said, and to a lot of people, that was like denial yeah, of yeah. what Hamas did, which it, it isn't. It's just... Like, there were a lot of stories that came out that turned out not to be true. You know what I mean? Like, the 40 beheaded yeah, 40 babies. Beheaded, Robin Urbach was tweeting about that, too. She was like, they beheaded babies. This is your resistance. And then she had the audacity a couple weeks later when the, you know, Al Ali um, hospital courtyard explosion occurred. In the beginning, when they were still pretending like they weren't bombing hospitals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in Trudeau and Melanie Jolie said then that they fully embraced it. Yeah, that, but at the time, they said targeting hospitals is a war crime. And then U.S. said, oh, our intelligence says it was an Islamic Jihad rocket. And then Canadian intelligence said the same thing. And Urbach was like, this is spreading disinformation that is putting Jews in danger. How is this tweet still up? And it's just like you go back, you search her tweets for beheaded babies and Sure enough, that's still up. And now that has been completely debunked, right? Um, And that's another thing, this framing any questioning of the narrative around October 7th as akin to Holocaust denial, right? Yes, I saw, I think it was the U.S. ambassador to Israel talk uh, on Al Jazeera to Mark Lamont Hill. And when he wasn't accepting that it's been 100% proven that there's a Hamas headquarters under Al-Shifa Hospital, and I don't think it has been proven. No, I mean, if it was proven, we would have seen proof by this point, and all they right. got was that there... Well, we saw, we saw like, the guns hidden next to the MRI machine or something yeah. ridiculous like that, but... And then caught the Israelis adding weapons to that, yeah. that, that cache, right? So, clearly, they weren't just there. And I think BBC did a piece about how, like, it was edited, even though they said it was, like, all one shot, and then the bag of guns was moved around, and, like, a lot of dishonesty took place. But anyways, when Mark Lamont Hill told the ambassador, or the former ambassador to Israel, 
um, that, you know, it hasn't been proven. He literally said to him, you are doing Holocaust denial because you are not accepting evidence that Israel is presenting as valid. It's it's so right, exactly. crazy making. Yeah, it is to see this like explicit, like weaponization of the memory of the Holocaust. I mean, at the UN, Israel's delegation are wearing yellow stars of David, wow. comparing Israel being criticized at the UN to, to, to the Holocaust. While they are doing so much violence. Yeah, I mean, that image is going to be in history books one day, and it's going to be for the polar opposite reason. Yeah, it's so sad. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about your background? You were telling me before that you grew up with a very Zionist upbringing, and just, uh, yeah, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. One of my grandparents was a survivor of the Shoah, um, you know, was one of the most amazing people I've you know, ever had the privilege of, of knowing, but of course she had her blind spots, like um, I think many in the older generation do, right, I mean, right. many in our generation, um, and, you know, she was a diehard Zionist, right? Yeah. I, I mean, that for her, it was our saving grace. It was, yeah. this yeah. happened to me, and this is going to protect us from that happening again. And, of course, when you're a kid, you know, that allure is, like, really powerful. It's like, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. We have our own state. We have our own military. We can protect ourselves now. And, yeah, you know, the conflict with the Palestinians is just a manifestation of the never-ending historical cycle of anti-Semitism. They hate us because we're Jews. Was it specific that the Arabs or Muslims hate because you're Jews, or is it like the world against? That's a good question. It's actually, I think, both. Okay. Like, it was, of course, Muslims and Arabs in particular, but also that the entire world is critical of Israel because they don't want Jews to finally protect themselves, right? The the world likes Jews when they're when they're not fighting back is is sort of right. the the um, right using the state of Israel as a proxy for Jewish people um, historically. And of course, the reason there is a state of Israel is precisely so that won't be a reality, right? But then. Now that we have a Jewish state, it metamorphosizes into the state is like, you know, uh, the Jew among the nations, I think, is like something like Alan Dershowitz or um, one of these propagandists would say, right? That that it's um, mm. Israel's constantly being treated with double standards. It is, but not in the way... You think about that a bit critically. Not in the way he thinks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The The people who are being accused of holding Israel to a double standard are actually holding it to the exact same standards that any other um, state. Um, I, I mean, if an, another country uh, was doing what Israel's doing in Gaza, and I, I can tell you, oh, like, yeah. Modi is watching. Oh, and, yeah. And he's seeing what he can get away with, right? Just as Israel was watching Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh, who, by the way, they armed to see what they could get away with. And they saw that they just totally ethnically cleansed the Armenian population there and no one did anything about it. And, um, 
Yeah, so it's it's very much this ingrained like victim mentality, which is totally understandable. Yeah, yeah especially for someone of like my grandma, like someone like my grandma. How could how could she not be Zionist? You have, I mean, you, you can, can compare it to Palestinians in Gaza too, support Hamas. Why why wouldn't they? You have someone who's saying, who's acknowledging your suffering, and is 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 saying that. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to make sure this never happens again when the rest of the world was against you, right? Right. And and, and so that's understandable, but it gets to a certain point. I do want to say, though, that, that, you know, there are a lot of Palestinians that don't support Hamas. And, uh, I mean, their support seems to have spiked right now under the current circumstances. But, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Right. And I mean, it's complicated, right? I mean, just like most Israelis don't support Netanyahu, but they support his war. Yeah. And and I think that's a nuance that I think is lost on a lot of people. Because you hear people say, oh, well, there are all these Israelis protesting Netanyahu. They're against him. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but that has nothing to do with yeah. Palestinians. That's, it's about domestic issues. It's about, um, you know, the, the authoritarianism um, that's being expressed towards Israeli Jews, right? Because if you look at the Israeli, the biggest opposition parties, I mean, they're, I, I mean, totally on board. Yeah. But but obviously you know my grandmother was uh, um, you know ride or die for uh, for not not just for Israel but for the the you know the uh-huh. Israeli right right uh-huh. like Netanyahu and Sharon and and Begin um, and um, yeah I, I went to a Jewish day school in in, in Toronto and this sort of blind uh, support for Israel was instilled in me from. A very young age, since I mean, since I can remember, um, and you know, growing up as a teenager, I knew I was a progressive. I didn't like George B. Bush or the War on Terror, and I think realizing Israel's central role in in the War on Terror, particularly during the 2006 uh, invasion of Lebanon, I remember at a certain point George W. Bush was like, "Okay, we need a ceasefire now." And Ehud Olmer, um, who was the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, who's now like a left winger by today's standards, was like, "No, right, right. no, there's not going to be a ceasefire. We need to, uh, uh, you know, we need to eradicate Hezbollah." And uh, I, I thought that was interesting that, like, George W. Bush was, like, acting as a dove in, in, in comparison to uh, Ehud Olmer. But also the fact that the Israelis were just like, no, and the U.S. was just like, yeah, okay, whatever, was uh, sort of really, I think, disrupted this narrative that Israel is this, like, hapless victim state that just wants nothing more than to live in peace with with its neighbors and i uh you know i i discovered like noam chomsky um around that time and i was reading what he was saying about israel and i was like well, i didn't know jewish people could like think another way about israel you know yeah and then uh you know i went to university and i went to york right which is supposed to be like this you know hotbed of anti-semitism because the palestine saw 
solidarity movement there was quite you know popular and in just this narrative that you know campus anti-semitism is just out of control and um i actually had a friend from 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 high school i went i went to public school for the last couple years of high school which i think was also part of this like realizing that there is something really wrong with this this very bubble like environment i i was raised in and that i wasn't getting like a complete picture of reality uh-huh. i mean because the jewish school i went to was was, was like was a private school right because you know in ontario right. as of recording private schools don't get publicly funded unless they're catholic catholic schools get public funding but that, those are the only religiously affiliated but yeah. they're also private catholic schools which is you know weird and but yeah and so you know i i think it's uh income bracket was higher than most because it was a private school but because it was a religious right. you know based school it also i mean it did offer subsidies to you know lower income people i have a very close friend that i'm still close with who lived in an apartment building and i, I was just like she was like my first friend who didn't like whose family didn't have like a house and like she had like a single mother and there's, my point being, that was an anomaly. And uh, but anyways, a friend of mine who was a couple of years older than me from public high school, um, who is of Israeli descent, was also you know starting to question things. And she was getting involved with Students Against uh, Israeli Apartheid at York. And so I. You know, through her, the, the you know these people that I'm told are like I, I need to be afraid of that they're they're trying to uh, you know exterminate all the Jews. I you know, I started talking to them, just asking them without without mm. being argumentative or judgmental. Like, what do you actually think about this issue? Like, you know, Hamam Farah, who I met in those years, um, has become I, I think a fairly prominent Canadian Palestinian voice who's uh, actually a, a Christian from Gaza, and he's also a, a psychologist now, and uh, he's been a very uh, compassionate and articulate voice about what's happening in Gaza now from a perspective of someone who's supposedly yearning to be free from Hamas rule. And, um, you know, I mean, he's not uh, 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 the biggest fan in the world of Hamas, but of course you, you talk to him and it's like no it's the israeli occupation which is why i left uh palestine it's not it's not because of hamas and yeah and just through that and just gradually realizing that this entire narrative i had been sold was um was a lie and I, you know, I was very, always very scared of uh, really getting involved with pro-Palestine organizing at York. Like, I had friends who were, but I sort of kept my distance. I didn't want my parents to find out. And, and then, you know, as a journalist, I was also, I really tried to dance around the topic for the longest time. And then I think it was in 2021, the last time Israel attacked Gaza, mm-hmm. where I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm I'm going to start writing about this um, because I know mm-hmm. again how scared people are for uh, speaking out on this topic and you know what will happen to them, sort of the accusations of anti-Semitism they will face, and and right. um, you know the least I could do is lend my 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 voice of 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 support. And, um, uh, of course, these uh, 
pro-Israel groups hate nothing more than when there are Jewish people vocally saying, "No, actually, you don't speak for us. You're not. You're not the right. You're not the king of the Jews. Like you don't get to say what Canadian Jews think or how we're supposed to feel about these matters." And that. There is a wide array of perspective that you don't represent. I mean, CJA in particular, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, actually, is a relatively new organization that was founded in the early 2000s because the Canadian Jewish Congress, which was actually like a, a somewhat democratic body that responded to the sort of local Jewish federations and uh, actually was like transparent about how its decisions were being made and was also a flawed organization. I mean, they kicked out the uh, United Jewish People's Order uh, in the 50s um during the the red scare because they're a leftist organization right so but it, oh. it, it represented a spectrum of opinion from like you know center left to to the right but its focus wasn't on israel right it, that was part of its mandate but it also um was engaged in various like social justice causes and um advocating for like you know local jewish interests it's still kind of mysterious how the canadian jewish congress got shut down in the in Sija came to prominence but what is believed to have happened is a lot of the wealthy backers of the Congress, like Heather Reisman, who is the founder mm-hmm. of Chapters Indigo, the mainstream bookselling monopoly in Canada, pulled their funding. You mean the sweet little mom and pop shop? Yeah, exactly. The Jewish owned bookstore that's being <laughs> vandalized because its owner is Jewish. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pulled her funds, and, and, and Jerry Schwartz, her husband too, who is also uh, wealthy in his own right, and other benefactors like the Bronfman family, uh, which has like a weird Nexium uh, connection. Oh. Yeah, you know, one of the Bronfmans that w- w- was involved with Nexium. I, I, I don't. Not. I don't think the ones that. Um, like it's. She's part of that family, but she. Like legal disclaimer, CJ has no connections with Nexium that I'm aware of. Right. But they pulled their funding in because they deemed uh, the Jewish Congress to be insufficiently hyper fixated on Israel to create the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which is almost exclusively an Israel lobbying organization that smears anyone who expresses disagreement as uh, anti Semitic and uh, systematically shuts out any Jewish voices that aren't on the right. Right, like we see with uh, Jewish Voice for Peace like happening all the time now. They're an American group, but uh, a pretty big one. Yeah, and we, we have independent Jewish voices in Canada, which is that mm-hmm. their equivalent. And then if not now, um, also... Um, right. That was founded by um, the maker of that documentary, right? Uh, Israelism? Simone Zimmerman? Yeah, I think she is one of the founders of If Not Now. Yeah. Have you seen that documentary? I haven't. I've I've heard I I need to, but have you? Yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's so good. I really recommend it. If anyone can, they should go. I think they're selling tickets to watch it online. Yeah. 
Yeah, Israelism, and uh, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't good, they you know wouldn't be trying to shut it <laughs> everywhere. Right, exactly. And yeah, the uh, reaction from the people who call everything like blasphemy law uh, has been interesting in that they've been very silent, right? Like when people have in the past said like, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't make insulting drawings of Muhammad. Like I'm, I'm an ex-Muslim. I don't really care if anyone draws Muhammad or not, but I understand that some people are very upset by it. Some people perceive it as like a racist provocation and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that if it hurts something so deeply in someone, then maybe people should be a little more considerate. While, of course, it shouldn't be illegal. You know, there's nuance there. But people jump on that so much to say that this is like, you know, trying to enforce Sharia law and blasphemy law and... There's nothing from those people in how much silencing Israel is doing right now. No, in fact, in many cases, they are, it's part of it. Like Barry Weiss. Yes, yes, uh, yes, you know, yes. Is, is really, really the uh, poster girl of, uh, of that. I don't want to call it hypocrisy because I think it's something more sinister than that. It's, it's ideological. It's weaponizing, you know, Jewish suffering to, to, to support a project that is fundamentally uh, supremacist. And, uh, you know, to, to Barry Weiss's credit, you know, you see, like, Sija in Canada is a good example, where on the one hand, they're saying that Jewish people are being excluded from progressive spaces because they support Israel. And they'll say on one hand, and then on the other hand, they'll adopt the oh wokeism is actually anti-Semitic yeah. because it creates these uh, binaries between oppressed and oppressed, and it casts Jews as the oppressor. Um, right. Uh, whereas Barry Weiss will just like outright say, like, yeah, DI is anti-Semitic, and uh, we need to get rid of it. It's so fucked that they're trying to tie this stuff together, like all their grievances against college kids, against leftists, against Muslims, obviously Palestinians, you know, diversity. All of it is being wrapped up into this one horrendous campaign and homophobia and transphobia. Yeah, it, it is funny seeing all these people hail Israel as this LGBTQ paradise. Right. And, uh, well, beyond the fact that you actually can't get married as a gay person in Israel. Right. That's never mentioned. Yeah. Um, but also all these, like, turfs, like, love Israel, though, of course, there is also, I, I've noticed also an interesting phenomenon is with the, the sort of million march for kids movement that we saw. Yeah. Oh, that was in Canada, the anti-LGBTQ movement that we saw around, what, Pride? last year yeah it was against like uh uh soji this this like gender inclusivity resource for teachers that's like totally voluntary but also with because a lot of you know devout muslims got um were involved with that and so yeah. there's also overlap uh on the other side too unfortunately yeah. but of course right now you know the battle i think is is to save palestinians in gaza 
Right, and not be distracted by all the deliberate disinformation and, like, gaslighting and bizarre framing. I find that the term gaslighting is so overused in, in political discourse, but in this case, it is exactly what these pro-Israel groups and pundits and propagandists are doing, right? It's, it's, don't believe your lying eyes. But they're claiming to be gaslit at the same time. Exactly, of course. It's, it's so wild out there. I mean, it has been so disorienting for me because I've just never experienced this level of organized disinformation like it's so everyone has the same talking points and everyone is so willing to distort the truth right in your face like yes criticism of israel is anti-semitic and i'm like huh how how are you how do you say that when they're carrying out so much violence i mostly look at these things through my lens my experience like online has been you know, finding the atheist scene and then the ex-Muslim scene which has been such a huge disappointment but the atheist scene used to go on and on and on and on about how Islamophobia was going to be weaponized and they could not allow that even as a term to have any credibility because they're just going to use it as a shield to shelter the religion of Islam from getting any legitimate criticisms while their criticisms move from like, oh, you know, maybe this part of scripture is quite problematic in this time to we cannot allow hordes of Muslim immigrants to enter our civilized societies. And so... Their criticisms became very, very, like, not legit. Meanwhile, they still clung to the fact that Islamophobia, we cannot allow that to have any legitimacy whatsoever because it's just not real. They're just using it. They're just using it, even as people were gunned down in mosques. Like, Sam Harris is saying that now. He's putting out episodes saying why Islamophobia isn't real right fucking now as Palestinians are being you know, mass slaughtered. And uh, it's just, it's so bizarre to me that the same people are also like, yeah, it is anti-Semitic to criticize Israel's policies and behavior. Yeah, it's interesting too, because their argument also about, uh, I remember when Amira al-Gawabi was appointed Canada's special representative on Islamophobia, or I forget the exact name of it. Right, people were so mad that that should even exist. Yeah, and you had, again, in the National Post, of course, but also elsewhere, also the Toronto Star, saying, oh, well, what do we need a representative for combating Islamophobia for? Um, You know, we have Muslims who are elected to parliament. And it's like, we also have a special representative to combat anti-Semitism, who, by the way, retweeted an article from uh, the late Tariq Fatah saying uh, oh God, that guy. how Islamophobia isn't real, right? Mm. And, 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 but but it, it's interesting, you know, Terry Glavin, who is, is uh, you know, 
probably one of the biggest reactionary blowhards in Canadian media. He's like, he's like a wannabe Christopher Hitchens, you know, he like says he used to be like, a, you know, internationalist and a Trotskyite. And uh, now he realizes that like the U.S. empire is like the most revo- revolutionary force in the world and it's combating radical Islam. And now he, he's been doing a lot of propaganda for Modi lately. Um, but he was saying like, you know, this is uh, really troubling, this push against Islamophobia because it could outlaw mere disdain for Islam as a religion. And I mean, you contrast that like criminalize and just you know having a critical opinion of Islam like that's what he's thinking it's gonna do yeah or at least stigmatize it right stigmatize this view that like Islam is 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 a bad religion whereas meanwhile with anti-semitism People are saying that it's going to be weaponized to constrain criticism of the state of Israel, not even criticism of Judaism. Yeah. Because, again, when, you know, I think it's a slippery slope when you're criticizing the tenets of a particular religion. Especially minority religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To criticizing people who follow that religion, right? But when we're talking about the actions of a state, a nuclear armed state, right? But these people want us to talk about um, the feelings of Jewish people in, in in the diaspora and the supposed Holocaust that's just around the corner. If we don't uncritically support everything Israel does and buy every piece of IDF propaganda, hook, line, and sinker, even if it makes no sense. So CJA, which is, as we discussed, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, they tweeted something that Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia, she had shared a tweet which they claimed features anti-Semitic tropes of Jewish power and denying the lived experience of Jews. Um... But the original piece that was shared was written by a Jewish person and shared by the account Independent Jewish Voices, and that's what was retweeted or quote-tweeted. And they are using this Muslim person, as you mentioned, as a proxy to talk about it being anti-Semitic, to share this view, but they won't engage with the fact that this view is actually coming from a Jewish person. It's so bizarre. And and not just any Jewish person, like a former head of Harvard Hillel. Right. Like a guy who studies Torah, and and, and you want to say he's anti-Semitic? Like, I get, um, you know, with the way uh, identity politics are weaponized, it's tempting to just say, oh, well, this person's Jewish. They're anti-Semitic. When, of course, you can be a Jewish person who's anti-Semitic. Just like, I mean... I know all about the belonging to the group but spreading bigotry towards that group. I mean, yeah. Right, like like Tarek Fatah or uh, Rahul Raza, right? She's uh, searing the National Post all the time and chairs the board of uh, Rebel News. Um, Oh, so gross. Yeah, which is a far-right Canadian news site um, that... Your listeners might be familiar. People might remember Ezra Levant. Um, but yeah. But I think what it comes down to is whether what they're saying is grounded 
in embracing their understanding of their culture's values, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, if a Jewish person goes around denying the Holocaust, they're anti-Semitic. It doesn't matter that they're Jewish. But if right. a Jewish person is saying Israel's uh, conduct and the way its supporters are trying to censor anyone who disagrees is a uh, perversion of Jewish values. I mean, that's not, you can't argue that's anti-Semitic because it's placing Jewish values at the forefront of um, their critique. That doesn't stop some people. Right, exactly. But they can't engage with it. So they use people of color as, as a proxy as you said, to attack dissenting uh, Jewish voices, which are only growing. I mean, the longer this goes on in Gaza, I mean, I think more and more Jewish people are going to be like, wait a minute, was I being told the whole story, um, you know, when I was growing up? Right. And, of course, no, we weren't. We weren't. And, you know, people will say, oh, well, there's, you know, there, there are false narratives on both sides. And it's like, I mean, true. I mean, there are, you know, Palestinian people who will say there's no Jewish connection to Israel. It's all fabricated. But I think that once you acknowledge who actually is in power in this this relationship between Israel, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, sure, there are also Palestinian people who uh, deny Jewish connections to the land of Israel. But they, again, are being occupied by Jewish people who deny their connection. Right. So, it, 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 you know, it's total—because that's the thing. There's, um, you know, sort of combating this really one-sided uh, pro-Israel narrative is that, on the one hand, you know, you point out, well, there's another side to it too right that's the first step but then the second step is like but also the other side is the one who's being oppressed by israel and so that the reality is one-sided but the reality is as as we've been saying is being inverted to us in uh, you know both in jewish people in, in in jewish institutions like day schools and camps and synagogues and but also among the broader public right in terms of what people uh you know consume in the media and what our politicians say and what corporate leaders say right i wanted to talk to you about one of our uh, foremost media critics in canada over here (laughs) um jesse brown of uh canada land he has been really something to watch currently i mean he always kind of rubbed me the wrong way like whenever i didn't listen to canada land very often which is a very canada specific very large or was very popular and uh, important podcast dealing with canadian related issues and um Whenever I did listen... Specifically media criticism, I think that... Specifically media criticism. But sometimes he would he would deal with, like, um, public figures like Jordan Peterson or Tariq Fatah when he passed. And whenever I did tune into those, as someone who has very closely studied the IDW and people like Peterson, I felt like it was really, really downplayed. Like... 
he was really smug and like, of course, like people are over exaggerating. He's not some like I, I don't remember because it, it was a few years ago the exact words. So please forgive me, but I think the gist was something like, you know, he's not some like deranged incel king or something like that. But like, no, he actually is though. <laughs> and so little things like that, I felt like. <laughs> yeah, I remember that episode too. He like whitewashed while kind of saying that he was criticizing and he did do some okay criticism but a lot of it was whitewashing as well and then even with Tarek Fatah I felt like there was some whitewashing as well even though he seemed sensitive to the idea that Tarek was pretty anti-Muslim a lot of times and um, yeah I don't know some things about what he said just did not um, sit well with me. And uh, these days watching him, he's fully transformed into this like anti-woke kind of IDW-esque character, even though like I, I guess he cl- did he claim to be a liberal? I think people perceived him to be regular progressive-ish well, he, liberal. I, I think I have a more sympathetic view of uh Candleland than you do I, I mean he sort of the podcast started when I was in journalism school and he did the you know the Giango Meshi takedown. Oh yeah yeah I, yeah that was good. And, uh, yeah and I think he made some mistakes but overall I mean obviously Giango Meshi is a freak and deserved to be uh taken down. And and for my listeners let me just quickly state that he was a radio show host and a popular media figure and beloved by a lot of people like you know I used to listen to a show and I'd be like oh it's so nice to see a person of color getting prominence on Canadian radio but then he was outed as like some horrendous freak that was like hiding behind BDSM and non-consensually punching women so he was taken down maybe not swiftly enough but you know he was taken down as he should have been Just wanted to pop in here again and stress for people that might not know of this story that Gian Gomeshi had multiple allegations of sexual assault and harassment against him. Unfortunately, he was acquitted of those charges because the system fucking sucks. And uh, yeah, just wanted to make the extent of his awfulness clear. But now I'll let you get back to finishing the episode. On that, I think Canada Land was good. But yeah, do go on. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's undeniable that Jesse has done great work as a journalist. I mean, their takedown of the We Charity was, I think, fantastic. Yeah, I just wasn't as familiar. I didn't listen as often as you did. And whenever yeah. I did listen, it was topics that I was very familiar with and did not agree with his take. So maybe that's why our difference of perception I'm sure he's done great work. Yeah, and I think the important thing um, when we're talking about his, like, Zionist uh, meltdown is that there are a lot of great journalists who work at Candleland, uh, like Archie Mann and Jonathan Goldsby and, uh, uh, you know, Matea Roach. 
and as well as many people uh, working behind the scenes who, who do like that's the thing. What started as his own like podcast slash blog has become like a legitimate independent media outlet. His own politics have always been, I found, quite idiosyncratic. Like, I think it would be fair to characterize him as like a small L liberal. Um, I always appreciate that he wasn't a partisan, but in like an annoying way where I remember he once sort of boasted about how he's voted for like every party um, oh God. At, a, at a different point, which is like, okay, so you don't have politics. Like he has like libertarian inclinations and stuff. See, but. so, okay. To me, that is a very big red flag. Like this posturing as being too rational to lean one way or another. I just, I see that so often in the rational bros and I know it's its own kind of partisanship, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, it's like radical centrism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but and, and anyways, I, I always thought like, yeah, he has some bad takes, but he's overall, uh, you know, a force for good. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, and, and I think he has been um, uh, historically, but... I and I I knew he was always this issue was a big blind spot for him. Uh, I remember early on he did this episode like why I hate talking about Israel, and um, he had um, oh god I forget the guy's name but some he's like a Canadian guy who used to edit the Jerusalem Post. Oh Norm Spector who was the former uh, publisher of the Jerusalem Post in Canada's uh, former ambassador to Israel. So this was the first episode he did uh, about Israel. And when was that? This must have been 2013, 2014. And I remember thinking it was a bummer. And it was like, oh, wow, this issue is like definitely a blind spot for him. Like, you know, he has this sort of narrative that he's clinging to about Israel and trying to present it as this nuanced um, thing. But it was never really a, a big issue because, you know, most of what he did uh, had nothing to do with Israel, right? And so it was easy to be like, oh, whatever, he has a blind spot. Like, I know, uh, you know, a lot of people who uh, do work at Candleland don't have that viewpoint. Um, but yeah, since October 7th, his uh, contribution to the discourse on this topic has been uh, just talking about uh, anti-Semitism and how uh, Canadian Jews are in danger and in doing so, uh, conflating blatantly anti-Semitic acts like shooting bullets into uh, Jewish day schools overnight, firebombing a synagogue, both of which took place in Montreal, um, with, you know, these uh, demonstrations. And so he he's just been sharing any story of any alleged anti-Semitism, depicting it as like proof positive that there is this unprecedented wave of anti-Semitism. He actually said it was the, the worst anti-Semitism in Canadian history. Yes, that's what I was going to say. I mean, surely, 
Surely he remembers there have been way worse periods of anti-Semitism. Yeah, like when there were literally signs saying no Jews allowed in in in, in places in Canada. And and it's just total uncritical parroting of this messaging from from pro-Israel organizations and in his version of media criticism has been like the person who hosts uh, CTV national news, Omar Sachedina Yes. Doing a report on a pro-Israel rally in Ottawa and he called it a pro-war rally. I mean they were literally there with flags of Israel while Israel is carrying out these actions, if you are, you know, waving giant Israeli flags, what what else is... It's not so far-fetched to think that you're supporting Israel's actions. Yeah, I mean, it's not at all. If you're going to Ottawa to go to a rally in support of Israel... Um, then yeah, you support. I mean, Rex Murphy was a speaker there. The Israeli ambassador was a speaker there. You know, and, and just painting it. And, and this guy is a media critic. That's what he's made his brand on criticizing these deceptive media narratives. And um, obviously, he just threw this vitriol at a uh, racialized news anchor and asked, uh, you know, if anyone knows what's going on at CTV News, you know, I'll protect your sources. Meanwhile, uh, Emma Paling and Martin Lukash at The Breach have, have been doing fantastic work, really picking up what Jesse should be doing. And they did look at what's happening at CTV News. And uh, again, the, the reporters there are getting directives that are explicitly pro-Israel from head office saying that they can't say the word Palestine, that, you know, they shouldn't cover these protests, these massive protests that are happening like every week. But uh, Jesse's concerned about accurately calling a pro-war demonstration a pro-war demonstration right he said it put canadian jews in danger like it's just quite the accusation to say that to another journalist meanwhile ctv is telling journalists they can't use the word palestine Right. And then um, I think this culminated with his uh, really sloppy hit piece on Sri Paradkar, who we mentioned earlier as yeah. being one of the few voices in Canada's op-ed pages that has anything critical to say at all um, about Israel. And he's had Sri on the show multiple times before. He decided to write this whole takedown about how, you know... With a big photo she- of her, like, as the cover of the piece... Mm-hmm. And how she's making Jewish people at the Toronto Star unsafe, based on two sources that spoke to him. Now, I don't know if she's one of his sources, but um, he does have a cousin, Emma Title, who is a columnist at the Star, who has written in the past about how, uh, again, progressive spaces are unwelcome to Jewish people because Zionism is frowned upon, and uh, I think that's probably Probably, uh, you know, worth speculating on, but uh, just really sloppy hit piece because the entire premise is she is the star's internal ombudsperson for um, sort of like racism and discrimination. So the job is that if employees at the star feel uncomfortable going to management with their concerns about racism, they can go to Shree. 
and she'll be their voice, right? To serve as sort of like a middle person, especially when, you know, you have a lot of young racialized journalists who are early in their careers and they don't want to be seen as like a troublemaker. So they go to Shri right. and then Shri goes to them on behalf. But now apparently a couple of Jewish employees felt that they felt unsafe but couldn't go to her because she was the one making them feel that way. That was the charge. That was the claim. That that was the charge. And basically, the 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 premise of the story was that the star eliminated that position for her because she's making Jewish people unsafe. But then, right after that piece came out, the union was like, uh, "No, actually, um, Shri's position is." It was a management role, and that role was eliminated, and now she has the same role as part of the union, right? So the the job wasn't eliminated. It was just um, brought into the collective agreement. So it was spun as this thing, this controversy about her making people unsafe. And the only reason that they said that is because... She said that we don't know the details of what happened. Let's leave that to the experts and let's focus on the genocide. And then there was like, I don't know, she retweeted who who is a Jewish person, I believe, but they also have had some other tweets that are a bit strange. Uh, but she didn't retweet those specific tweets. It's like another tweet of... You know, like, I think that person that she retweeted also tweeted about, I think America should resettle Israelis or something like that. Yeah, and, would- and nobody is asking for that. Nobody is, nobody is talking about that. That was this person's own thing. And I don't think that Shri retweeted that at all. But she said she retweeted something else that person said. Yeah, no, and, and the piece was updated with a clarification that um, it is uncertain if Paradkar was aware of another tweet by Gallander suggesting that land could be returned to Palestinians by relocating Israelis to the United States, an act which could meet the UN definition of ethnic cleansing. Paradkar did not retweet that message um also it's funny because the original piece just said that what gallander was saying was was advocating was ethnic cleansing and uh it was updated to be like well it could meet the un definition but what about other things that are also ethnic cleansing right now there's no mention yeah no of course not the the actual ethnic cleansing that is happening Mm-hmm. And then there's all this other weird stuff that, like, like so basically, um, some journalists wanted to attend the, you know, Israeli embassies screening. Weird edited screening of those Hamas videos. From October 7th, which uh, I think Owen Jones, he he attended it in, in, in London or somewhere in the yeah. UK. And he did a good job of being like, okay, hey, here's what it shows. Here's what it doesn't yeah. show. Here's some things in it that that um because apparently there are some voiceovers in it that were added where this was like really graphic like talking about how they were gleefully like playing soccer with a person's head that there's no video of that it's just a voiceover of someone and of course israel has uh repeatedly and they won't share like an unedited version with journalists even like it's only their pre-approved 
screenings that they're it's just the whole thing is so strange yeah but the way it's addressed in this hard card it has nothing to do with her but apparently some journalists wanted to go the managing editor of the star said no because we already have rosie demano going who of course is another one of canada's cheerleaders uh for israel in its op-ed pages and he also said like consider like the mental health toll or something like that but yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he should have he should have let whoever whoever wanted to go should have been free to go i don't know why he would stop anyone but yeah it doesn't have anything to do with the person who the hit piece is about it's it's very strange that this big piece with this big photo of her and her name on the headline is filled with all these things that are unrelated to her and yeah and there's some other like real sloppy reporting he he talks about again this has nothing to do with shree but a uh, couple uh reporters at the star one of whom are jewish um have been covering pro-palestine rallies and they quote a group called toronto for palestine which was accused of holocaust denial right they had a very stupidly worded instagram story i remember that like saying something along the lines of oh well if they're doing so many lies about this genocide, imagine how much they might have lied about another genocide, right? Like, something like that. And when they were questioned, it was, of course, that wording is unacceptable. It's not a good way to say, even if they're trying to say the thing that they... So they say that they were not talking about the Holocaust, and they were talking about the Nakba. And... If you look at that as that being the intent, it is very true that uh, Israel has tried to distort and deny the Nakba. Like they have, they have called it an Arab lie. They have called it a justification for terrorism. And in 2009, the Israeli Education Ministry barred the use of this word in textbooks for Palestinian children. So, they have certainly lied about that. Yeah, but again, very stupidly worded. Very and I think the worded. fact that it was deleted quickly um, suggests that wasn't it their intention. Because if it was, then what? And they believed that it was a reference to the Holocaust. Then why would they take it down? But well, maybe they can, did not consider stupidly that it could be misinterpreted this way and uh, obviously it can so I don't know maybe that that is why they deleted it quickly like oh fuck yeah that does sound terrible but either way their wording was unacceptable and absolutely sounded anti-semitic but their clarification if you look at that intent then they're not wrong that lies were told about the Nakba as well that is not anti-Semitic to acknowledge. Exactly. And then and, and people, I mean, I think, like, obviously, when people are talking uh, uh, about this issue, I mean, they do need to be careful. Exactly. Um, because there are vultures out looking to take anything you say and cast it in the most unflattering light. And also the history, right? You do have to keep that in mind. Like... 
you can't just post like a picture of Netanyahu being a puppet master, for example. Yeah, or like, you know or what like I mean? Drinking the blood of a baby or something, right? right? Like that, right. that is anti-Semitic, regardless of yes. what the intent of the person who posted it was. It can be difficult to navigate if you want to harshly criticize Netanyahu. You still have to be aware of tropes, but then people are kind of using that confusion and saying, like, criticizing APAC is relying on anti-Semitic tropes or going back exactly to- it reminds me of you know elon omar i mean how yes. how is a somali refugee supposed to be in tune with all the intricacies of jewish sensitivities that are totally um justified based on the history but nonetheless i mean you do have to give people who aren't from a culture where these things are you know at the forefront um, some leeway, I think. Um, right. Like, I have to say, growing up in Saudi Arabia, I knew nothing about Israel, nothing about anti-Semitism. Like, I know there's this perception that there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the Middle East, like naked, and I'm sure there is in a lot of circles, but the bubble that I was growing up in, I guess the anti-Semitism is the erasure. Like, it just was not discussed, right? Right. There was no talk of Jews or Israel or even actually anti-Muslim tropes or anything. I guess because I was living in a pretty much fully Muslim country, there's no need to talk about it. But um, it has taken me like studying these IDW guys to learn about these things myself, right? Because in my early online days, I wouldn't understand what a dog whistle western civilization was but now i do right and and this is exactly what um you know when these people talk about cancel culture that's what it is it's it's taking mistakes people made and just immediately dismissing them and, and casting them out of you know polite discussion rather than teaching them how they screwed up and trying and having them recognize the harm they did and, and, and pledge to do better, just casting them away. Whereas if you look at someone like Jordan Peterson, he's not making a mis- honest mistake, right? He's yeah. digging his heels and saying that no trans people don't exist. It's all Marxist ideology. And, and and so casting someone like that out of polite society, not that we have any power to do so huh. is yeah. very different because there's no desire to learn or pledge to do better. And I, I think that's uh, an important... And Sam Harris, who is saying that, you know, campus kids are, like, now making anti-Semitism, like, the most popular thing ever because they're chanting from the river to the sea. Meanwhile, Sam Harris himself has said, like, you know, even in the aftermath of a synagogue shooting, I don't think anti-Semitism is such a big problem. Or um, something like... We have to acknowledge that uh, the Jews did partially bring about the Holocaust on themselves. Like, he says things like this that are completely unhinged beyond belief and super anti-Semitic, I I believe. He is of, you know, Jewish background, at least partly. Uh, So, I guess he feels like he can say them, but I... 
I don't know. It's it's a weird. I don't know. Do you think this thing about criticizing the influence that APAC has is actually anti-Semitic? No, no, it's not. And and I, I know. I, I mean, people do need to be cautious when they're talking about it because of all that, um, all all the sort of cultural baggage there is um, with that. But at the end of the day, these groups are precisely hiding behind. Yeah. That, right? They know that they can conduct themselves in this way because anyone criticizes it. They're saying, you're saying that the Jews are controlling politics. You know what I mean? And But but then it goes back to, no, we're not saying the Jews. We're talking about pro-Israel groups that aren't all Jewish. I mean, the biggest pro-Israel right. group in the world, if I'm not mistaken, is Christians United for Israel. Yeah. So the anti-Semites talk um, about their influence. It's just an intimidation tactic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support it, there are several ways you can do that. You can share it online, talk about what you just heard. You can leave a five-star review to help others find it too. And you can also subscribe via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No E in mangoes. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter before it's uh, completely wrecked, you'll find me at Nice Mangoes. Again, no E in mangoes.